0: I think what we were just saying was important because I think you and I agree that this um, tinkering with the basic idea of the Constitution is, uh, is something we're very suspicious of. Um, and, uh, and, and it's happening again. I know some people don't like this, but it's happening on both sides and I don't like it on either side. They're playing with fire because America doesn't have a lot to ground it. We're not a religious state. We're not an ethno state. Uh, we mm-hmm. don't have these traditions going back to the Middle Ages. We don't play
1: soccer that well. We don't play
0: football. <laughs> um, so what we have is this civil tradition holding us together, and I'm very nervous about anybody that would that would disrupt that.
1: This is the conclusion of a novel in which the narrator is um, unreliable. It illumined, it at the face. Characters at the edges and on the edge. Remaining a perpetual possibility. Lonely, violent, deeply American life. Only in a world of speculation.
0: True ease in writing comes from art, not chance. Very fine is my valentine, very fine and very mine.
1: You're listening to the Grand Podcast of this with John Pistelli. Great and puffed up with his retinue. All right, everybody,
0: you're listening to The Grand Podcast Abyss. This is your co-host, John Pistelli, and I'm here with the best and the brightest, Sam Worthington. How are you doing today, Sam?
1: Ah, yes, thank you, John. A reference to The Best and the Brightest by David Halberstam, Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist. Wrote perhaps the most important book of the 70s, but today we're talking about a different piece of journalism that appeared in Vanity Fair the other day talking about the new right, the post-left, the new this, the new that. Do you recall reading something like that, John?
0: I do, Sam. There was a uh, an excellent article, essay, um, in Vanity Fair, written by uh, someone named James Pogue, a nice Irish fellow who will appreciate some of our future programming as we head toward Bloomsday.
1: Um, I hope so. And Pogue's <laughs> a nice writer. I mean, he had the easy, regular, observant, journalistic prose. And he was chronicling... Um, thinkers and and players within this movement that we talked about new conservatism in quite a fair and informative way, don't you think?
0: I do. I think it's, uh, it's a topic we devoted a whole episode to recently. Mm-hmm. I think our episode called Shock Jocks was about Peter Thiel, Curtis Yarvin, and the sort of countercultural dissident scene around them. And this article – I think is probably the best thing that's probably yet been written about that scene because it has that, um, it has that lucidity that doesn't have the sort of tone of a panicked anthropologist that you get when liberal <laughs> writers are right. writing about a right-wing milieu.
1: And we've noticed the trend of more quality journalism on uh, this intellectual and political movement, which is an indication of um, its growing influence and in – what did you find significant about this piece?
0: Well, um, well, first, just speak to the, the broader point you just made. I, I think if I, you know, you have to read between the lines a lot because we have a culture that's very quick to make certain kinds of accusations. Um, and so I think what liberal, broadly speaking, journalists like uh, Pogue or maybe uh, Jacob Siegel, who wrote the profile on Curtis Yarvin we talked about in that last episode... I think what they are finding is that they – I think they think liberalism needs to take some of the critiques that these thinkers are making a little bit seriously.
1: Uh, I agree. And you can see it even within uh, content of a a program like Morning Joe or Joe Scarborough beginning to pump the brakes on a type of cultural – progressivism that doesn't seem to be persuasive in the broader American constituency. So liberals um, trying to learn from this growing influence and allure of these new conservatives.
0: Yeah. I think what they're trying to do is find um, where some of their critiques are fair ones, um, both in cultural progressivism and Probably the one that concerns me a little more is this technocratic mentality that really came mm-hmm. to the fore with the pandemic. Um, I think some of these thinkers do have a fairly sharp critique of that attitude that's technologically totalitarian. But I think what they're doing... So the old the, the old paranoid way of reading this would be like, well, they secretly sympathize with them. Our journalists are secretly becoming Nazis. And then they'd post mm-hmm. that uh, article from... Uh, from the Atlantic in 1945, about who goes Nazi or whatever, um, and
1: which would mean <laughs> um, more a more nuanced um, view of that would be sort of a, a yearning to restore the nation, kind of with cultural moderation and conservatism.
0: Yeah, or, and I don't think that's what's happening. I think that they, I think that these journalists who are taking a somewhat more even-handed approach to this are. Alarmed at some of the capital P political extremism that some of these players have. So, for okay. instance, okay. there is a line in this article um, where <laughs> I believe it's Jack Murphy who says this. Do you know Jack Murphy? Is saying? I do.
1: I feel bad for the guy. I
0: I do. We shouldn't we shouldn't get into it.
1: <laughs> well, if people don't know about him, but I should
0: maybe I should am I too, am I cruel to laugh?
1: <laughs> well, I think the word grifter is. Applied liberally and, and, and without um, um, evidence in a lot of cases, but I think he was a, a bona fide grifter, yeah. and he got he his nut got cracked by the <laughs> by the new by the new, <laughs> by the new conservatives when they found videos documenting uh, a lifestyle that was antithetical to the one that he was um, marketing. Yes. So. Yeah, so. I feel bad for the guy.
0: You can look it up if you want to know more yeah. than that. <laughs> if you you if you want to see his nut getting cracked, you can oh, look it up. No. Uh, <laughs> but yeah. Murphy is quoted in the article as saying, uh, and I quote directly, <laughs> among some of my circle, the phrase extra constitutional has come up quite a bit. And I think that's actually a good quote to start with, Sam, because you and I are probably going to disagree a little bit, as we always do on these politics episodes. But I think you and I have shared the view that we're very impatient with this trend that really is genuinely on both sides of the political spectrum that easily disparages the Constitution and the traditional political institutions of the U.S., right?
1: Well, absolutely. And our disagreements, John, are a sign of a free, robust, antagonistic exchange of ideas, which is critical to our cultural and political functioning yes so i see that as our greatest i don't know maybe our greatest um, demonstration of right mm-hmm. here mm-hmm. behind the mics here and so what is what is this frame of disagreement that, that...
0: well i think so in the, one of the things the article so let me, maybe just I'll, I'll characterize the article broadly and then we'll go into okay, it okay so The article is framed by his uh, the the journalist, Mr. Pogue, his attendance at the National Conservatism Conference, right? And at this a proper
1: boozy, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, vice ridden um, uh, setting for that type of journalistic piece, almost like Hunter S. Thompson.
0: Yeah, it's a
1: nice environment. It's wonderful. Right, and he
0: is. I mean, he's he's hung over by the end of the article. Yeah, it's it's really they're smoking together. It's it's wonderful. Um, And so he's meeting all sorts of people in this event from Senate candidates like J.D. Vance and Blake Masters, both of whom are funded by Peter Thiel, are self-proclaimed Trump populists, and if there's a red wave, probably stand a chance of being in the Senate, in the Mm -hmm. next Senate. But he's also meeting uh, countercultural figures in this world, whether that be the neo reactionary philosopher Curtis Yarvin or Amanda Milius, the uh, the daughter of the famed right-wing screenwriter and director John Milius. She's a fire breather. She really is. Um, and she is fun. Uh, <laughs> like, I'd like to hang out with her. Well,
1: that's part of the thing with these new conservative women is part of their stylistic appeal is that they're fun and yeah. carefree and obscene and right. free-spirited as opposed to the, the Taylor Lorenz sort of prude, tattletale liberals of the world. It's like this is a better form of femininity. Yes. that's the, It's part of their appeal.
0: And it's not traditional. It's, I mean,
1: and it's not unintentional. Ironically,
0: Taylor Lorenz is traditionally feminine. If you offend her, she'll weep. Uh, if you offend Amanda Milius, she'll put a cigarette out on your eyeball. Like right. It's not traditional femininity. No,
1: this is an interesting aspect of... Of the, the, new, the new conservatives.
0: Yeah. 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 And I, I have heard interviews with Amanda Milius where she says things well where she's like, well, you know, I think society should be conservative, but I, you know, I'm not. I live in an apartment with two cats and I spend all my time on, you know, art and politics. and. <laughs>
1: well, let me ask you about that. What is What is that? Because that's interesting.
0: Yeah. Well, yeah, part of the Trump populism and Pogue brings this paradox out really well. Um, And this, by the way, is equally true on the Marxist left, is that you have the people that espouse these politics are themselves highly educated, philosophically aware, artistically inclined, completely abnormal people. Mm -hmm. Um, They didn't, you know, the the men didn't play football. The women weren't cheerleaders. They don't have, you know, 2.5 kids and live in the suburbs. They're freaks. Uh, I say that I'm the same way. I am this kind of person myself. Um, And yet if you espouse a populist politics, you are outraged on behalf of people that don't get the opportunity to live that normal middle class life because they're being exploited by capitalists in the Marxist account or they've been sold out to international interests on the right wing populist uh, account.
1: Right, and in sort of a cultural vice grip, which which denies that the, their freakish authenticity. Yeah, what I hear you saying has something to do with freedom of choice mm-hmm. in this movement.
0: Yeah, or well, they would hesitate. I think I don't want to put words in their mouth, but and we'll have to come back to this. But they define themselves as anti-liberal. They think something's gone wrong with liberalism, or that liberalism led to this culture of the hollowed out middle class and the reign of woke experts. So freedom of choice is a liberal ideal. I think for them, freedom is more rawly existential than that. It's sort of, you know, um, maybe we can draw on Corey Robin, whom we gratuitously insulted a few episodes ago, where he talks about the the ideal of the right is the freedom of power to take its course. And so if you're powerful enough to live this life, then you should live it.
1: But if you, it's earned. It's earned,
0: yeah. And I, I,
1: have, I well through a variety of virtues.
0: I do think maybe there's something to that. I think there's a lot of people that. Well, that's because you like Nietzsche. I do like Nietzsche, and I think that a lot of people have claimed the mantle of a certain counterculture while actually being just normies with tattoos, um, and they haven't paid the price.
1: So you've got this earned freedom. That has to be on a ground of inequality, but yet um, with enough immunity from state intervention and coercion to allow you to achieve it as an individual. Yes. But rights and equal uh, protection of law, things that are built into liberalism are would not be present in their ideal state. So, therefore, it's a higher risk, higher reward type of scenario in which culture is ventilated to the the savvy?
0: Yeah. But there is a noblesse oblige part, too, where you throw a a financial bone to the the rubes. Okay. Where you help the middle class to maintain their middle class lifestyle.
1: Yeah, and their productive, tax-paying existence that... Supports your loftier, more original, more high-class aims Yeah. and interests.
0: Yeah. And you say that like it's a bad thing. No, I do I... <laughs> but, but I feel like that's what... That's the way it always was. I mean, the intelligentsia and artists so. were always— I mean, that's as true of uh, Bloomsbury, who were left-wing as it was of any, you know, of the right-wing modernists, just to go back to that period. Um, so, I mean, if you, want, if you want a cultural vanguard, you have to support it.
1: Well, I think we're being honest and saying that's the way it's always been yeah. in some form or another. Yeah. With some sort of either advancements of a framework of rights or— um absence of of rights and and stewardship under a regime right i mean you know you get some that's probably natural that stratification Mm -hmm. but the thing in their vision i wonder about is if there's no constitutional guarantee or um, state protection of rights um, which our democracy has developed so so um adeptly over time and adjusted to history If those aren't in place, then all the work – then it's extra governance and it's extra regulation and it's extra discipline for that regime um, to fill that absence of rights with their authority. Yeah. And are they willing to do that and are they able – are they the best and the brightest? Right. Are they able to (laughs) fill that vacuum? Well, that's where I think
0: Teal and Yarvin come in because there's a couple people in this piece say – well, what, what needs to happen when Trump gets back in 24, what he needs to do is fire the entire bureaucracy. And I think there's a distinction between some of them. Some people think, well, replace it with our guys. And there is some—I think there's a slight—I'm I'm willing to hear that argument because I think there is a problem in a society that's supposed to be ruled by popular sovereignty while the actual governance gets done by, like, lifetime civil servants— I think that's like the British Empire and not a, a republic.
1: I hear that, but the point I'm making is we, we hear all these critiques of a of a bloated administrative state, yeah in a in a um, metastasizing control and uh, regulation over the individual in the United States um, but for most of those, those involve concrete services mm-hmm. And like execution of basic due, um, obligations of a state, and they could be bloated, and there's that's the job for audits and, and oversight within the federal government to to moderate those things if they're not productive and effective. And I'm not some idealist about the public sector and and social services being being you know on principle superior to to private enterprise and services. I'm not an idealist in that sense. I'm pragmatic. But I think, okay, if that's, a, if that's sort of time-wasting overreach in the actual administrative form in the government, they make time for that by having a constitutional judicial system which guarantees less concrete, more abstract, but more fundamental components of being a, a citizen, namely rights and rule of law. And if that, let me try to finish this point. If though, if, <laughs> I, I didn't interrupt you. <laughs> no, I'm just talking to myself. Okay, <laughs> I'm giving myself motivation. But you follow me. And if that piece isn't in place, or sort of a priori to a state, as it was so ingeniously erected in the United States, then that becomes labor for a state to take care of and enforce and discipline. Yeah. But we have mechanisms which efficiently protect and and expedite those processes for individuals. So if they don't want that as a part of liberalism and rule of law, that means that they have extra work to do, which is to rule on like, I don't know, basic altercations, which would be easily um, um, moved through our our current system and take the time to sort of rule on that in an illiberal fashion to say who has this right and who doesn't have this right. So a, a particularity of rights, not a universality of rights. Now if you're willing to do that labor which is built into the American system, your administrative state will probably be three times the size we have because we have a constitution.
0: Yeah, no, I agree with that. I, I think their mechanism is devolve as much power down to the smallest level as you can get. Well, how so? Well, I think that's where the patchwork ideal of the neo reactionaries comes in, where you would have local sovereignties rather than one overarching sovereignty. Okay, and that would somehow be secured on the blockchain. Gonna Are we going to have that. to read the
1: Federalist Papers next week?
0: <laughs> I read numbers one and ten. I think we're good.
1: <laughs> so that's okay. So we're getting the nuts and bolts of power, but we've drifted from this more immediate cultural yeah. Um, well, no, I think I think what we were just saying was important
0: because I think you and I agree that this um, tinkering with the basic idea of the Constitution is uh, is something we're very suspicious of. Um, and, and and it's happening, again, I know some people don't like this, but it's happening on both sides, and I don't like it on either side. They're playing with fire because America doesn't have a lot to ground it. We're not a religious state. We're not an ethno state. Uh, we mm-hmm. don't have these traditions going back to the Middle
1: Ages. We don't play soccer that well. We <laughs> don't
0: play football. Um, <laughs> so what we have is this civil tradition Holding us together, and I'm very nervous about anybody that would that would disrupt
1: that contingent on very specific democratic aspects. Yeah, um, yeah. So, and uh, just I'll, just real quick, the left and the right who are promoting this illiberalism or the, this throwaway of natural right and and common law and the, and the American constitutionalism. I wonder, and this gets to the point I was making. If they were to obtain power and institute their revolutionary structures would those be the type of people who would be willing to do the actual work of governance because there's two type of people in this world there's people who don't want to be governed and there's people who govern yeah according to Machiavelli and those extreme ends which um, erect these these inflammatory critiques which captivate the minds of of enough people to you know give them relevance and influence i doubt that they're the type to be able to work and i think the ethic of work actually resides in the strong middle of the united states which is a liberal middle that serves a republic and always has been and always will be
0: and in my experience people that are at the real extreme of not wanting to be governed often don't want to govern I mean, that's my personal experience. You can well, then check. Then they have some
1: serious problems on their end. Yeah,
0: I mean, you can check my rate, my professors' yeah. page. It says, "I didn't even read the books and I got an A." <laughs> that's because I don't want to govern any more than I want to be governed. Yeah. Um, and so there is a certain, like, there's somebody that just could do that work and somebody that can't, and I, I'm not somebody that can um, personally. Um, the thing that, go ahead. The thing that kills me about these people um, is that. They have such a sharp critique of that technocratic mentality that came to the fore, the rule by experts during the pandemic. And yet they say, oh, the problem is we have too much liberalism. Now, how can we have too much liberalism— when we had two years of basic civil liberties being suspended in the name of what seemed to me to be an often opportunistically extended state of emergency. It mm. seemed to me that the last two years were characterized by too little liberalism. Mm. And I think, if you'll permit me a brief digression, I remember January of 2020, I think you and I talked about this, um, it was the right who was saying we we need to be afraid of this virus, we need to shut the border. and. I think a lot of people in the intellectual ranks of the right were prepared to do the lockdown themselves. And then for a wide variety of contingent reasons, the politics on that got flipped. And they found themselves being actually the really the defenders of liberalism in certain ways.
1: Um, well, I have a theory about that in that the right's response was – it was a moment of ideological um, openness and that so much of, of their project in the 2020s relies on, on a national unified opposition to Chinese expansion. So I think they used that – those early warnings. I mean that's fundamental, especially to the MAGA-Bannon segment of U.S. politics. Is in opposition to uh, the Chinese government that functions, and we could diagram that, but that functions in such a fundamental way in their aim. So I think that was their incentive for the alarmism and the and the prescience. But I think the liberals' incentive and more practical, you know, as they w- might put it, but a more practical response into a t- technocratic. Um, overreach mm-hmm. the different incentives for different domestic policy aims
0: right yes um yeah and i think there was i think the the initial democratic response i think was actually somewhat uh, somewhat healthy to be sort of wary of creating a mass panic wary of mm-hmm. doing any kind of cultural ethnic scapegoating um but then they have they are the party more identified with that bureaucracy and so once that bureaucracy had a job to do They were able to make that their political identity.
1: There were more obligations and opportunities. Yes. Yes. And so does that get to the technocratic critique from the new right? I think so. Which is is
0: what? I think their view is – and this is really not very new. This is an old right idea – is that our society is really sort of choked by this ever-expanding bureaucracy. That we have an ever expanding set of laws and bodies to enforce those laws that allow all sorts of intrusive administration in every aspect of work of even some forms of you know private life.
1: Okay. It's like you said, tr- sort of a traditional conservatism, or at least an American yeah. Republican. A libertarian. E- ethos. Yeah, sure.
0: I mean Thoreau, who's not. But a that's
1: liberal. that's not the the. There's no one simple commitment or one broad commitment in this movement that can explain them all. It's very diverse. Explain all. Of the new conservatives' beliefs. I mean it's a mash, right? It's
0: a mash, yeah. I think that's what makes them frightening to a certain type of person that's not in this world is that there seems to be something different in the depths from what's on the surface. There seems to be this freewheeling freedom. We're drinking, we're smoking, we're saying whatever comes to mind. We're watching John Milius movies. And then is there some kind of authoritarianism?
1: We've talked about In the this. deep
0: background, yeah. yeah. Um, and I think it's, it's more amorphous than that. I don't think it's as, quite as devious as that. Um, and I think what authoritarianism these people are planning would be more local than global, Um, I think they really do probably want to bring authority back down to the local levels. Okay. Um, And I don't know if they're going to be able to do it. I mean I'm not a political scientist, but I think a country of this size is probably hard to govern without an overarching bureaucracy.
1: Well, that helps me understand some of their uh, uh, political aims and obstacles. But what about – this cultural splash that they seem to make yeah. because there's something tintillating. Is that a word? Yeah. Tintillating. Titillating. That's no, not, not a word. <laughs> uh, I did tantalizing and titillating. <laughs> right. Uh, <laughs> titillating. Uh, there's something, there's something juicy. There's something relevant. There's something yeah. angsty and alluring and, and, and proper for this moment, which is probably as old as dust, right? You know, there's nothing so new about these dynamics, but yeah. what is it that culturally, that, that, why are they so magnet, uh, magnetic right now? I mean, just to let's name a predecessor,
0: I did my uh, part of my doctoral dissertation on Oscar Wilde, and here is a guy. Um, he's uh, married, two kids, going with uh, young rent boys you know on the weekends has a long-term male lover um is irish his parents are progressive irish nationalists liberals he comes to the united states he loves it out west he sort of sympathizes with the confederacy because he thinks they were colonized like ireland but he also sympathizes with walt whitman Mm. and the poetic beauty of our culture um he goes Mm. back to england he uh he, he, he calls himself a socialist, but the pamphlet he writes about it is really a defense of anarchism. Um, he goes to jail for obscene behavior, which was illegal at that time, which was his uh, homosexual liaisons. Gets out of jail, uh, converts to Catholicism. So,
1: I mean, oh, wow. I mean here's... It's, I mean, it's ringing a few bells.
0: Yeah, I mean, this idea of a libertine, radical, anarchist... Conservative, right. this aristocratic radicalism, Tory anarchism, uh, that's that's an begins, old dynamic.
1: Begins in f- fidelity to the oppressed.
0: Yeah, it has an element of fidelity to the oppressed, but it's deeply magnetically drawn to power.
1: Because his individuality is so strong and charming and ebullient that he can't contain it. He has to express it. He finds um, um, uh, aestheticism and bang, he's a Catholic. Yeah. Yeah. These so, are the these. So, are you saying are you saying that Oscar Oscar Wilde, the importance being earnest, the uh, Mister High School curriculum? Are you saying that he's a progenitor to the new right? Is that your claim? Yeah. Has that been made?
0: Yeah, I think. Okay. Um, yeah, Camille Paglia, and Sexual Personae, for one thing, says that it's ridiculous the way he's hailed by the gay movement because he wasn't a liberal.
1: Hmm. Um, and I talk, But I mean specifically in this uh, in the post oh, in, left in, in the, the, the post, post conserv- left conservative I, I don't PLNC.
0: I don't think, no
1: There hasn't been an application? I don't think You heard it here first, you folks You heard it here first, yeah. this, is what we, this is what you come here for <laughs> You're two to three years ahead You get critical um, bisections, applications, wedding, cleavages um, Wedding cleavages I mean like <laughs> wedding, putting together and cleave, you know, cleave word Like you put it together and you take it apart You know what a wedding cleavage is I wasn't talking about the bosom of a bride Okay, so Decolletage. This is what. This is what you come here for, folks this is this is what we do. This is genuine product. You got Oscar Wilde as a progenitor, as a as a mirrored biographical image to the the these new luminaries on the post left. Yeah.
0: In fact, let me read you a quote. I, I I really I shouldn't say this, but I really like this quote. It's from the Wikipedia page of John Millius, Amanda Millius's father co-wrote um, the film Apocalypse Now, directed Conan the Barbarian, and was the basis for John Goodman's character in The Big Lebowski. And he says, he, they asked him his political views, he says, I'm not a reactionary. I'm just a right-wing extremist so far beyond the Christian identity, people like that and stuff, not very eloquent, that they can't even imagine. I'm so far beyond that I'm a Maoist. I'm an anarchist. I've always been an anarchist. Any true real right-winger, if he goes far enough, hates all form of government because government should be done to cattle and not human beings.
1: I was, sometimes I wonder with these people. This is There. This is mm-hmm. post left new conservatism. This is this is uh, national socialism. This is although they were a little oh, I have something I have something to bring up in a second here. Um, but it seems with these people, man, these people were all throughout history, especially the last three hundred years, especially the last one hundred years, mm-hmm. and at once they're the most Powerless in some sense, or the most incapable of actual execution of governance yeah. and statecraft. But on the other hand, they're kind of the most interesting people. <laughs> right? <laughs> we, yeah. we, we kind of are the most unqualified for governance, but the most qualified for our uh, for our speculation and attention and object of interest. And they themselves are. And we talked about propaganda versus art last week, but they themselves walk this border between showman, aesthete propagandists and we can't seem to turn our ways our eyes away from them but should we be worried about them or should we enjoy them or should our enjoyment worry us because they might gain power
0: yeah it's that's a great set of questions um, first on how we should think of them the French sociologist Pierre Bourdieu whom I don't generally like that much but he he wrote a lot about this the development of the aesthetes and the decadence in France and he said he tried to give a name to their location in the class hierarchy. And he said that what they are, and this is a really good phrase, he said they're the dominated fraction of the dominant class Mm -hmm. because of just what you said. They don't govern. They don't hold the positions of power. Often they're born to the middle class, but they're downwardly mobile because they're in the arts and there's no money in the arts, so they're starving and they're, little apartments where they record their podcasts Um, and so they don't wield class power but they belong to the ruling class Um, and so they're the dominated fraction of the how do they belong
1: to the ruling class if they're so extreme in their political views say more (laughs) Well, how could this? How could this? These what do you call them? Bohemians? Yeah, Bohemians is fine. Or they're specific types. They're special ops Bohemians. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <laughs> they're ideologically inclined. They're I'm going to change the world, Bohemian. I don't really like how things are going. This is an outrage, Bohemians. And, but I think Bohemia has always had this mixed politics. I mean, but just, how could they be agents of the ruling class if they're so antagonistic and extreme? In well,
0: they're not agents, but they're members. Because unwittingly. No, well, witting or unwitting doesn't come into it by virtue of birth and education.
1: Oh, so well, that's the truth. You
0: can't be oh, a mem- there you, go. you can't yeah. be these people without having had there a certain education.
1: So just enjoy them for the performers that they are.
0: Well, that's what I was trying to say on the Fukuyama episode, okay. which is that you can't— there's Keep litera- it
1: cultural. <laughs>
0: <laughs> keep it cultural. There's no advantage to living in a non-totalitarian society if culture can't be a free— arena for all of those antisocial tendencies, but it has to be cordoned off a little bit from the directly political sphere.
1: Yeah. Even if part of their style relies on revolutionary extreme politics yeah, or pronouncements.
0: Yeah. And the more
1: power these people
0: get, the more they're going to find that the people that actually are able to carry out their programs aren't culturally sympathetic to them.
1: Well, check this out, man. I'm going to take a little, a little turn here. Okay, we're going off the gravel road into the the deep dark forest where predators lie. Okay, uh, <laughs> hmm. so this this fellow Bronze Age pervert. Yeah, this guy's a little different from this school. Yeah, he made, and this is why I brought him up. Mm-hmm. He made the claim that he's sick or tired of hearing of sort of a, a libertarian sort of American national conservatism. Which just aims to sort of be anti-technocratic, take away power from big tech and administrative power within the government and corporate bureaucratic power, which drives progress in technology and alienates the American man from his heritage and drives drives him to alcoholism and drug abuse and cultural alienation, blah, blah. We all know the critiques, the J.D. Vance critiques, mm-hmm. protect the border, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, he says all that he's, – he's he made a, a clarion call to his followers to reject that form of conservatism and like in the steps of the Nazis, seize the means of technological advancement and progress and put it to work in more excellent, more bu- brutal, more futuristic ways, almost in the, almost in the way that the, the, uh, the futurists did. In, in mm-hmm. Italy, or that same ethos. So it was a call not against technocracy, but the seizing of technocracy yeah. to enforce more right brutal.
0: But see, this is so stupid because the <coughs> futurists just and this happened in Russia too. Sorry, I'm going to both sides. it again, it happened in the under the communists and the fascists. You had these explosions of radical art movements: the futurists, the constructivists, all these people. And the minute those revolutions, fascist or communist, consolidated, they put those people on ice right away, and they said, "Time for nice pictures of, uh, you know, women uh, milking the cows and men on their tractors, and uh, uh, and uh, time for some Art Deco train stations, and time not to have these unintelligible pictures that the middle classes or the proletariat of the heartland can't understand."
1: So that, because they're aware of where their power lay.
0: Yeah. So that they that's been tried. It's failed. There's no reason to think it won't fail again. Uh, Ron DeSantis is not going to fund your futurist, you know, tower. Um, it's just aesthetic. It's just aesthetic.
1: Oh wow. So we weren't in the predatory forest with the wildebeest.
0: <laughs> well, I just. We I were mean... in
1: some fence fenced off. <laughs> institutionalized setting where where we're in the where these these diaper-wearing 45-year-olds are sitting in the sand you know, talking shit.
0: I mean, I'm sure they're bad people, but I don't think they they have any power to act on these threats.
1: But it was interesting in that he's claimed as an l- intellectual leader of a new right-wing movement um in the United States, he is. You give him that. I give him that, but it's it's the same
0: thing as some of the identity politics. It's like, here's an image you look up to and you identify with, and that makes you feel better because there's some other realm of the culture where you feel like you're being insulted and disparaged. So here's Bronze Age pervert if you're a disadvantaged white male, and here's the Black Panther if you feel disrespected as a black person, and here's Ms. Marvel if you you're You think a- you put
1: him there? So you put them, you put them majority in the realm of imagination and not mobilization.
0: I think so. Yeah.
1: Okay. I didn't see. I don't. I think I take it a little more serious than that. Okay. But um, yeah, I mean, I hope you're right. I just thought it was interesting that that crew uh, pivoted towards the embrace of technocracy and progress.
0: Yeah, no, I, I get that, and I think that—I just think that the actual people who are going to carry out the task of governance by the nature of what that type of person is like is not going to be sympathetic to homoerotic Nietzschean futurism and is not going to implement that as a broad cultural policy. The, but the scary thing is going to be just a more Christian conservatism.
1: Well, let's not waste our, any more time on jesters and talk about real players. So you got Teal, mm-hmm. and he's running Masters in Arizona, mm-hmm. and Vance in Ohio. Yeah. Vance is such dumb-dumb man. <laughs> you don't like Vance? He's just kind of—I <laughs> don't know. He, th- he thinks the world owes him something. Ah. You know, he has that—you're not special, Vance. Mm-hmm. You're not aggrieved— you know? Yeah. Well, he's a good—I mean, I didn't read—did Hob- you read Hobiliology? A little bit of it.
0: Okay. I mean, I've sort of flipped through it, but I didn't read yeah. the whole book. But yeah, he's another one, I think, where there's a, a very close like symbiosis with the identity politics on the left.
1: So where you just mentioned it, but where does Christian conservatism fit in all this?
0: I think these people think they're going to be able to boss the Christians around um, or just use them as their foot soldiers— um whereas I think that the actual local authorities in the red states are you know sincere Christians and are actually going to want that to be their culture and, and are the, gonna... and
1: these people are different these are real Americans
0: from whose point of view
1: uh, from what from my from my point of view okay <laughs> my point these people you're describing now, these ringleaders power brokers within heartland Christian. American constituencies these people and I said real American in the sense that they don't glide the rails of like a trans historical ideas and in kaleidoscopic ideological experimentation and bohemian um, pleasure centers and ironies upon ironies upon ironies upon ironies and all this shit we get off on and and stylize for ourselves they don't fuck with that right so how is Amanda Milius and Anna Katchian going to— Right, right. You
0: know? Well, yeah, yeah. They're not going to want Anna Katchian—well, she hasn't written a book yet. She should write a book. I, I'd read it. Um, but they're not going to want her—if she does write a book, they're going to not want that in the high school library. Well, I don't want it. Any more than they want Toni Morrison in the high school library. Yeah,
1: these people—you're uh, <laughs> making it so clear. It's—ah, <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> oh. oh. But what do we? Where shall wisdom be found? (laughs) What a cluster fudge! Oh my God!
0: But back to the Christian point. um, One of the (laughs) one of the interesting moments in Pogue's article is when he talks to Honor Levy. Do you know Honor Levy?
1: I've seen his name. Her. (laughs) I thought that was a great French philosopher. That Claude Levi Strauss I don't follow I thought that was the same person is as that Honor it? oh Levy right yes Honor yes. Levy Strauss yes no and then I also <laughs> thought it was uh, uh, who's that conservative French philosopher it's, he's a centrist oh, Bernard Levy. Henri Levy no 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 uh. no no no, no. Uh, Caponce man he's who am I thinking of <laughs> this is going to be worth it when I drop his name he wrote about environment a lot. Bruno Latour. Oh, Bruno Latour. Yeah. What a mensch. Yeah, he's... He, conservative French philosopher.
0: I wouldn't call him a conservative, would you?
1: Neoliberal French philosopher. Yeah,
0: neoliberal, I would say. Even and then we go
1: across we cross the, 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 the border to our conser- friendly conservative French conservative German philosopher, Peter Sloterdijk. Right. So he's I, a Bruno Latour and Peter Sloterdijk.
0: Yes. Slaughterdyke's neoliberal too, right?
1: Yeah, Sloterdijk's neoliberal. Yeah. All right, so what? <laughs> so, <laughs> what, what? What? Both of those guys are hot shit. I mean, well, who am I to say? But serious, serious systems of thought, and yeah, those are two guys I want to read.
0: Yeah, me too. I've barely read them, but
1: um, yeah, we could read them here, you know.
0: Maybe we could.
1: Once I get done flipping through my LBJ biographies <laughs> by Robert Caro. <laughs> <laughs>
0: so, Honor Levy. Um, Honor Levy is the. She's a really interesting part of this scene. She is the hot new literary it girl. She was a find of uh, Giancarlo Di Trapano, who is the head of Tyrant Books. They're kind of an indie avant-garde publisher. Um, if any of them know who I am, they hate me because I gave an incredibly brutal review to one of their books years ago, uh, in not not just on my blog but in an actual magazine. Um, but uh, it's not. I'm not. You know, we've been through this. I'm not a big sympathizer with a certain kind of avant garde literature, but uh,
1: what what kind is that? The
0: kind that
1: the kind I like.
0: No, I don't think the kind you like.
1: I like Charles Bernstein and Bruce Andrews and Lynn Ginny and oh, no. like the New Americans. Okay, I don't
0: like those people. Um, <laughs> I like um, – there's a tradition that comes out, I think, of – so there's one thing that flows forward from like Elliot, Faulkner, Joyce through Ralph Ellison, Saul Bellow, Flannery O'Connor – into Toni Morrison, Cormac McCarthy, Don DeLillo. Flowing. This is who I like. Yeah, it's this a, is who I
1: like too. This
0: is a, there's a concreteness, uh, a groundedness, mm-hmm. an interest in history, myth, religion. Yeah. Uh, And then, here's what I don't like. There's a tradition I see that comes out of Gertrude Stein, William Uh Carlos Williams, Uh flows through William Burroughs, into the New York school, Ashbery O'Hara, and into these people you're talking about, where to me it's that jerk-off gesture that DeLillo talks about. Um, I don't like that. Gaddis? You know, Sam? I've never read Gaddis. No, that's not true. I read his last book, but it was only 100 pages, so I, I don't have a strong sense of Gaddis. Where do you
1: put David Foster Wallace?
0: In the Little Free Library. <laughs> um, Are you serious? I, <laughs> I'm i not a fan. I never finished Infinite Jest. Well, uh, then
1: you would you would um, probably see, read him more through that second school.
0: No, I think that he – I think he was a very lost – child
1: uh <laughs> he just needed to hang out with Pinchin, man yeah he had this anxiety of influence and pinch is all about kicking it and relaxing and being insouciant not taking too seriously and not getting ragdolled by your own ambition and i think wallace was preoccupied with yeah those correlatives and got fucking depressed yes couldn't relax very sad very sad mm-hmm Sorry that. So that's a. That's a digression, but that, that was a lot of information. Quick, it's I an interesting. I feel like we digression. just got naked in front of everybody.
0: <laughs> so I think that Tyrant Books and Honor Levy is part of that second Gertrude Stein type stream uh, flow. Why can't I? Why and so you <laughs>
1: identified that in an article for them, or you, you 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 criticize them?
0: Yeah, I gave a bad review to. I'll just name the book. I gave a bad review to Blake Butler's Sky Saw. And, uh, I fucking love that book. <laughs> you never read it. Nobody's <laughs> ever read that book. Um, and a friend of mine who speaks German, I don't speak German, pointed I sent him the review, and he pointed out that I had mistyped uh, Skysaw. I mistyped it as Shysaw. And he said, don't change it because it's Shysa. And I wow. <laughs> thought, oh, nice. Okay. Um, but anyway... Uh, so Giancarlo Di Trapano, he was the head of Tyrant Books. He unfortunately died a few uh, last year or a couple years ago. Um, and his last big find was on her levy. And she's been published in The New Yorker. She's been published in The Paris Review. She's been mentioned in The New York Times. Uh, she's just 20-something. Uh, she went to Bennington like uh, Donna Tartt and Bret Easton Ellis. So she has that kind of lineage
1: Wow, what do they got going on?
0: <laughs> I don't know. It's a small liberal arts college somebody in the must, woods.
1: Somebody must know somebody.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I think so. Um, they also are beloved, my beloved, Camille Polly, at Bennington for a while. Um, did you read The Secret History?
1: Of Golden Finches?
0: Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Is that the one? No, there's there's the Goldfinch and the Secret History.
1: Oh, I thought it was the Secret History of
0: Golden Finches. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, I like the Secret History. It's kind of trashy, but I, I really enjoyed it. Um, and that definitely will give you a at least a mythological idea of what Bennington is.
1: Um, nice. A very original writing about the college you went to.
0: Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I'll, I'll probably, I might do that next Samson. So let's be careful. Oh, yeah. But... Sorry about that. <laughs> I'm being a jackass. Forgive me.
1: <laughs> there's so, only so many...
0: Plots if you're a novelist um, well,
1: Tell that to Joyce and Wolf
0: That's true um, Ooh. <laughs> Joyce wrote about st- the school he went to
1: I just stuck uh, you with the blade that you gave me John <laughs> Ooh.
0: So anyway Honor Levy um, And I've written a few little, little things here and there About her on my Grand Hotel Abyss But she um, Has converted to Catholicism She was raised I think in a I guess a secular Jewish household. Um, and she has a podcast now called Wet Brain. Heard uh, of it. Yeah. Did you ever listen to it?
1: Not yet. Okay. Uh, but now get me excited. That,
0: not a lot. I agree with the, a little bit, I agree with the barber and Death in Venice that you're only as old as you feel, but Wet Brain makes me feel old. Uh, I, I just don't always quite understand the tone of that podcast. Um, Though maybe they'll have a son, Sam. They always interview people. Um, but. They the interesting thing is Pogue points out in his article is they're all Catholic converts on there and they berate each other they're like I listened to the last one and they're worried that Honor is becoming a rationalist and that she hasn't gone to church enough and the demons are attacking her um and if you ever see her like you know if you ever see like a uh, like she was she was on Justin Murphy's podcast and mm. uh, if you watch the YouTube video she's dressed like uh I mean, almost *Handmaid's tail like uh, is a level of uh, of, of a modest dress, um,
1: and he. You know, there's one way to get rid of demons. What's that? To hold compassion in your heart. Well, yeah,
0: yeah. Well, I think they, they do. She said that she actually talked about how she wants to be less reactionary and more compassionate. On and no one, no
1: one, or one thing supernatural and not can curse you or send you into spirals. of of demonry, you quite simply, you quite simply, in all cases, do it to yourself. Hold compassion in your heart.
0: Yeah. What strikes me sociologically about this phenomenon <laughs> is that this is a generation. These are the the Gen Z, you know, n- new conservatives, and obviously this culture of religiosity and reactionary politics has formed in opposition to the millennial wokeness. But it seems to me that if you're spending all your time on social media and podcasts saying, you're not going to church enough, uh, you are letting demons in, you're dressing immodestly, it seems to me formally the same thing as you're not being a good ally you're misgendering. You're. Uh, what are you doing to fight white supremacism? So it has that they're same— They're doing that?
1: Yeah. They're being uh, parochial and, and intolerant?
0: It has that same form of they're, the purity spiral. That is a
1: kick, man. They're just on a kick. Yeah, they're on a kick. It's absolutely. on a kick. Yeah. Because really when it gets down to with those folks, it's—you want freedom. Yeah. You want freedom. And maybe you want God, too. Um, and maybe for some reason, God— Maybe for some reason God becomes an exclusive or ultimate source of that freedom. But within that, there's so much to experience and untangle. And how can I say to another person, how can I prescribe until I've, I've burned through whatever it is mine to experience with that? Yeah. And the fastest way to shut it off from someone is to wield it like a cultural hammer and, and put people in their place and assert hierarchies based on that faith.
0: Right. Well, I think part of it is um, there was that trend in the 2000s of the new atheism, and that new atheism had a certain elan and swagger and elegance in Christopher Hitchens. But in the other members of that school, it just was a nerdish, vulgarian, I worship the flying spaghetti monster, like people completely— Illiberal. Illiberal. Actually. And— and bad taste, like bad taste. like just because somebody in the you know quote unquote hinterland reads the Bible literally, doesn't mean you shouldn't read the Bible seriously, uh, and things like that. Um, and so I think that this new religiosity is is a understandable backlash to that kind of easy, simplistic, uh, crass positivism and snide dismissal of you know immemorial traditions. Um, And Honor Levy is a talented writer, and I assume part of what's going um, on—and I hope this isn't condescending—but part of what's going on is I think writers, especially young writers, will—almost without letting themselves know they're doing this—will give themselves certain kind of extreme experiences for the sake of, you know, having something to to write about— um, I don't mean it that cynically though because it's 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 having having a a world to write about, having an experience, a real experience um, but it's just interesting to me that it still takes that same form of this purity policing of the culture they're ostensibly against.
1: <clears throat> well, there's two things that matter in the end one the level of your artistic output mm-hmm. and two, not in any. You know order of importance, what your faith and 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 whatever you believe in the in, in the inherent freedom you find in that in practicing that faith, I would say yeah the two probably most important things to me, and if any one of those people on a levy, any of the the individuals who are have converted to Catholicism in the post left movement, if they can find ways to um, to synchronize and coordinate those two things, into a life of prosperity and creation. God bless them. Mm-hmm. They'll be better than 99.9 percent of humans if they find a way to to harmonize those two things. Yeah. Yeah. I which think- which fucking artist do you know, other than maybe? Other than maybe, other than maybe G.M. Hopkins or Bob Dylan and his Three Christian Records, which artists do you know who who have synthesized those two things so well—faith and faith and artist, uh, artistry?
0: Yeah, it's it's a it's a, it's a short mean, list. There are some. I mean, we we talked about T.S. Eliot, um, Flannery O'Connor, of course, um, mm. Cynthia Ozick. Um, you know, there are people, but it's it's a short list.
1: Because it's difficult. It's difficult. Metaphysically?
0: Yes, and I, I think artistically. I think the—especially if you are, you know, writing in the, the difficult forms of modern literature, it tends to lend itself to an ultimate irony that might suggest uh, a nihilism.
1: It's easier to be a Gnostic artist than a, fa- a faithful artist?
0: Yeah, I would say so.
1: So anyone who can pull it off should be celebrated. Yeah. So go forth. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I look forward to uh, Honor Levy's future work. I do. Should we talk, maybe just put on the table uh, points of agreement and disagreement? Because I, on this very podcast, I have said that I don't mind the label post left. And mainly I did that because I find in my life, this is something I've uh, found in my experience, is that it's best to just... It's best to just take on the name they're going to call you instead of fighting it. And um, this in graduate school, um, it was always liberal. You're a liberal because they were anything but. So I was like, yeah, whatever. I'm a liberal. I'm a liberal humanist. You know, you eat that. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know if I'm a liberal humanist, but that's the name they were going to call me, so I just went with it. Um, mm-hmm. So I figured post left probably the name somebody's going to call me. I'll take it. Uh, so let's talk about points of convergence and divergence. And I want to pick out a particular moment in the article where Mr. Pogue very concisely and crisply sums up this post-left worldview. And I want to just clarify, and I think I've sort of already said this, but I want to make sure, almost as if we were in a court of law, that it's clear where I stand as soon as I find the passage.
1: It's not a lack of judgment that leads Americans to vote for Trump. What are you thinking of? We're voting for Trump because we judge the leadership of our country to have failed. You make a knave of your king. And the rule of law, and the rule of law. Unwelcome you laws, necessary. but necessary. You promise mountains if you perform molehill. How to interpret the freedom of information. Trump's agenda is about making America a normal country. I fear our revolution will have been in vain. vain. It is unavoidable if the union is to be preserved. How to interpret the freedom of information. compliance with the rule of law
0: to ensure compliance with the rule of law
1: you make a knave of your king so you had a passage
0: yeah, there's a wonderful moment in the article where Pogue is uh, interviewing Walter Kern, who's an interesting presence on uh, Twitter and sometimes on Fox News. Kern is a novelist. He wrote uh, the novel Up in the Air, which I think got made into a pretty famous movie. But alas, I haven't read the novel or seen the movie. Um, but Kern has found himself affiliated with this crew. And, uh, and he says in the article, Kern says, I find, um, I find some of what these people say chilling, Uh, I think probably some of the same things you and I do about the extra constitutional attitudes um, and some of the authoritarian attitudes. Um, But also there are things about it he likes. And uh, it's at this moment that Pogue sums up in one kind of thesis statement the basic worldview of this post-left. And here here it goes. Individualist liberal ideology, increasingly bureaucratic governments, and big tech are all combining into a world that is at once tyrannical, chaotic, and devoid of the systems of value and morality that give human life richness and meaning. As Blake Masters recently put it, a dystopian hell world. I thought that was a nice, pithy phrasing of it, and it allows me to show what I agree with and what I disagree with. I completely agree— that increasingly bureaucratic governments and big tech are creating a world that is more tyrannical than we want. That is Through
1: what mechanisms? Uh, suppression of free speech?
0: Suppression of free speech, also the kind of the, – the way the form itself manipulates through um, the way it incentivizes the creation of swarming and mobbing and algorithmic rabbit-holing. Uh, it's all very, it's all very much a machine life. You no longer speak; the machine speaks through you, um, and that itself probably does rob uh, life of some of the traditional sources of meaning, whether secular or religious, of kind of individual freedom.
1: So centralized, digitally imposed limitation on on individual freedom of consciousness.
0: Yeah, the the telos of the social credit score. Of uh, of these sites we see, which coming we don't from. really have here, we don't. But I think that's the logic of some of these forms of technology. I think they in the lead. sense of
1: your views will lower your social credit score. Yes, that not, not but, your behavior necessarily, or your
0: well, it could be your behavior. You um, you ran a red light, so you don't get to vote. You. Uh, you, we you, don't have that. You can't access your bank because you posted this. We don't this. have that. But I'm saying, Sam, that there's a logic of this convergence of power with technology that l- could. That will lead never to happen, that. happen here. I think it could possibly happen here, and we need to be taking careful steps. To okay, you're,
1: that. you're right. It could possibly happen, but there's so much that has to go wrong for that to set in. But we're not like China. Well, I think, see, this is where I
0: disagree with them. If I agree with them on the bureaucracy and the technocracy, I think it's really absurd to then turn around and scapegoat liberalism because liberalism, thats all these ism words mean a variety of things and can be used, especially the word liberalism, which means everything from laissez-faire capitalism to socialism, depending on who's using the word. But at least as I use the word, it means something like the protection of the, of the law. Right. And so I think you would want the protection of the law against these technological encroachments to protect our rights.
1: And a, yeah, a certain relationship between the individual and the government. But uh, you know, John, Barack Obama gave a speech at Stanford. I think it was this week. I think it was on Wednesday, mm-hmm. Tuesday. Um, what did he say? Well, I was impressed with it, mm-hmm. and I think Obama, for as much as he might, he might you know be at fault for some of our current predicaments. I thought he did a a pretty good job on the whole of foreseeing and hedging against some some um, threatening developments that we're currently experiencing. Uh, and he had, I, he was, he took off his mass rhetorical hat and he, it was, I think that speech was nice. It was almost like you were in a a strategy room, Mm -hmm. which is not a a side of him you see very much because neoliberals like to conceal their power and the logic of their power mostly. Mm -hmm. Like any, you know, effective leader. Yeah. (laughs) Um. He was obviously talking to this audience of Silicon Valley, so people with a lot on the line, Mm -hmm. who had been the spearheads of the development of this technology, technocrats, techno overlords, however you want to put it. And he was talking about the communication and consumption of information, as he put it, and how he'd seen in his lifetime the skyrocketing progress of the internet and its placement within our political um, organization, in a in a in a way that very few people foresaw but he talked about the unintended consequences of the internet's progress which is that information is a, is able to be transmitted and platformed across great distances to different audiences and disparate cultures and framed in a way that inflames their hatreds and divisions in a, way, in, an, in a way that in an earlier technological age was quite simply impossible. So you could have Christian conservatives in Heartland, Arkansas in the 1950s and <clears throat> who felt the way that they felt about homosexuals, but they didn't have any means or they weren't constantly bombarded of images of what was going on in San Francisco. At that time, mm-hmm. so there was like some sort of a information arrangement, yeah, in which whatever sort of fundamental beliefs and attitudes that they've had weren't vulnerable for for stoking, yeah, and weren't um, weren't vulnerable to this type of information because the technology wasn't there, um, and so he talked about the way in which exposure, uh the exposure that the internet has allowed for this type of information is intentionally framed and disseminated to people across great distances, and that is experienced by that audience as a direct affront to their traditions and belief systems. Mm -hmm. Even though there isn't proximity, Mm -hmm. even though there isn't concrete influence, even though there isn't sort of a shared local interest... Between yeah. these two groups. But in, it
0: goes both ways, right? Because yeah. the, the right thinks that they're living under Maoism and the left thinks that uh, it's about to be the Handmaid's Tale. Sure. Yeah.
1: It goes both ways for sure. But this, is a, this was a nice, like, sort of social critical moment for him, Obama. This idea that there is sort of a deeply irrational arrangement that we're in right now and sort of a real, like, new vulnerability. It's quite... It's new. Yeah. It doesn't have much precedent in the sense that the experience of being affronted by others, the experience of having traditions and belief systems threatened, immediate proximal threat, is made available through the internet right now in a way that stokes divisions and disunity to the extent that it's incompatible with democracy and therefore becomes – the prime ground on which foreign and domestic enemies can try to dismantle democracy, and to me that's a deeply lucid and, and practical critique. Mm-hmm. And I find that not as I find that not as a free speech issue as such, but I, find, I, I, I understand that as a a new technological condition which American liberalism has to adjust to and and respond to. Mm-hmm. Is that fair?
0: Yeah, yeah. I have, I have a couple things to say in response to that. Um, so first, I think, yeah, I mean, I think if you take a long historical view, and I'm, I'm just stealing from uh, Marshall McLuhan, I think, but when you have a new communications technology, it often kicks off social unrest and violence. So you have the printing press, then you get the wars of religion, Catholic versus Protestant in the middle of the last millennium. You have the radio, you have the rise of mass totalitarian politics. I think those are the two big examples. And I think there is a potential with, I wouldn't even say the internet, I would specifically say social media. Um, And the way that social media, because I'm old enough to have lived in the golden age of blogging where these things weren't a problem because everybody was writing 3,000-word position papers um, and then 2,000-word replies, and it it didn't have the same inflammatory quality.
1: Well, this gets to his proposed solutions in the speech. Okay. Which go, go, but go ahead. Um, so,
0: right, yeah. I mean, historically, I agree with him. Um, that's number one. Number two— i'm not I'm not a big fan. I think this is a persistent source of disagreement b- b- between you and me as I'm not a huge fan of uh, of the foreign agents are sowing unrest. I think that these problems would be there whether foreign agents sowed unrest or I said not. said foreign
1: and domestic?
0: Oh, foreign and domestic, yeah. hey, which is from the uh, constitution itself, is it not? Uh, all enemies, foreign and domestic? right. Um, but I think that whether or not um, Russia or China, uh, helped to amplify a message of, you know, pro BLM or anti lockdown or whatever. Um, I still think those issues would have been just as pertinent, and other you know domestic people would have would have participated. I think that's just kind of
1: scapegoating. So, what are his pro- uh, proposed solutions? Well, and they're interesting, and I just about that point I. I found it to be sensible in a way that you know the right will react to these type of criticisms and say, "Oh, this is a bold, a bald-faced um, uh, attempt to remove our First Amendment rights." Whether mm-hmm. this platform is sort of an open season, or oh, they'll want to, they'll want to any critique or analytic adjustment to where we are. In, the, in this information age They insist on having any of those critiques Like filtered through a Sort of an absolutist Like hard First Amendment perspective mm-hmm. Which is First Amendment has to do with government um, <clears throat> How the government treats its citizens By the way wow! And,
0: but there's First of all I don't want to get into conspiracy theories, but I don't think these tech platforms are at all—there's no firewall between these tech platforms and the government. I think they're often doing the government's work. I don't even think—
1: That's a fair point. I will get
0: into a conspiracy theory. I mean, did these guys really invent all this stuff in their garage or in the basement? It's military. Yeah, it's military intelligence, and they're just the front guys. But anyway, sorry, go on.
1: (laughs) But, you know, when you have Obama speaking in these tones in this serious analytical mode— Coming to the private sector hub for technology, you have to admire the the contingency yeah, between sure. the political and the, the private. <laughs> sure, like yeah, I'm going to get very serious, gentlemen, for a while. Like we're not in control of yeah. what's been happening, so there you have to admire sort of the wild west mm-hmm. consequential thing we're in 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 our adjustment to it in, in our democracy. Um, it's not all controlled, and. And it wouldn't be fun that way either. No, um, <laughs> but the 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 fineness of that point, it's so it's so sensible. It's like sixty years ago, we had the same seeds of intolerance. There had been wars and movements to expand rights for people, and trying to make a multicultural democracy work here. But we had hatreds and divisions, like we will have for all time. But <laughs> quite simply, like there was a. Distance and an inaccessibility to information, which might make those inborn—not inborn, sorry, but make those prejudices that people have extreme. So that proximity kept it at a level in which a national societal arrangement could flow, more or less.
0: There were certain—I refi- I mean, um, there were certain changes in, in the technological information infrastructure, so they— the kind of graphic war footage that they showed during the Vietnam War mm-hmm. on the nightly news—they mm-hmm. stopped doing that. Uh, sure, deliberately. I sure, think.
1: but in that older arrangement, there's something so <laughs> like sensible about it. It's like you hate gays. Well, we're we're. Conditions are such that you don't ever really have to be inflamed by exposure to their malbehavior mm-hmm. or like depictions of their excesses. Like you're just so. This t- is Obama's view. Well, this was yeah. This was like this was like the way it was. He was saying okay. that's how we were in America. And he
0: thinks that because that to me sounds a little Peter Thiel that we want. Mm. It's actually good to have more local. Control. Sure. So if you wanna go to a place that's libertine, you go there. Yeah. And if you want to go to a place that's conservative, you go there.
1: Well and the point of Obama was that it it was within a national context, but the technology was such that the whoever individuals with that prejudice weren't strategically bombarded and inflamed by images and depictions of the object of their prejudice. Yeah. So it stayed at sort of a I don't know. A, a mannered, modest—if you could call her—sort of like a mm-hmm. a moderate um, expression or rumination in daily life, if at all. It maybe okay. it showed up in a joke book or it said something to your friends, but it wasn't this thing that was assaulting and bombarding you.
0: But that, so I think that's a little historical because my—I'm not a media historian. Do you notice I always have to say ten times on an episode what I'm not? Um, but my, because <laughs> you're honest. My understanding is. Through the 60s, there was three television networks, and the primetime programming was conservative as hell. It was all those um, Andy Griffith and uh, Green Acres. It was all like Heartland, Farm, Gentle, Corny, Americana— And then in the 70s, that stuff got the axe. Mm -hmm. And you get All in the Family, Mod, the Jeffersons, Mm -hmm. which is all like Mm -hmm. in-your-face liberal, social commentary, raunchy. But even these uh,
1: things were dispensed in a form through weekly centralized television yeah. in which there could be a shared cultural experience with it that was moderated by its producers and creators. Right. And sort of a a shared symbolic order – with which prejudices of democracy were maybe expressed a little bit through the consumption of that TV, mm-hmm. but were at the same time moderated and experienced collectively. Yeah, so all like, in the
0: family, because the example, because yeah. the right and the left mm-hmm. both like it, but interpret
1: yeah. in you a know, dose, it in differently. A, yeah. In a weekly dose. Right. Same with newscast. Okay. So that's kind of like the technological media arrangements were such that democracy was, more, was less complicated, okay. more viable. And one might say, oh... Manufacture consent and all that stuff, and okay, fine, yeah, um but so he set that up, and then he like I said, he went into, but today you get that same couple who might watch you know the Jeffersons in the seventies and you know say the n word, um that was a show about black, yeah, right yeah, like you know <laughs> and say and say and say the n word, and so have but now. We're in an information age in which they're vulnerable to strategic and persistent bombardment of images which inflame their prejudice against African-Americans. OK. That's different. OK. And that's not a shared set of facts. That's an inflammatory, polarizing, vulnerable state of technology. OK. Which complicates democracy to the extent that we cannot, can no longer be complacent to it.
0: And his proposed solution is?
1: Well, it's regulation. Okay. Yeah. To what end? Um, he wants the... Uh, this is his criteria. Okay. Um, and he called himself a free, almost a free speech absolutist in this okay. speech. Because Democrats are doing that now. As okay. We were talking about that earlier. Yeah. As they should. Right. Um, but he said his criteria, his proposed criteria... For regulation of social media and information is whether it strengthens or weakens the health of a democracy. Okay. Two, whether it promotes a robust debate. Okay. Three, whether it reinforces rule of law and self-governance. Okay. Four, whether it helps us make collective decisions based on the best available information. Uh Mm-hmm. And five... Whether it recognizes the rights, freedoms, and dignities of all of our citizens.
0: Yeah, well, okay, well, then you're not going to have any free speech at all because what you're going to have is let's take number four best available information. That's going to be the shifting party line of the expert bureaucracy. Wear masks. Don't wear masks. Wear three masks. Wear four masks. Masks mm-hmm. don't work. We're bringing back the mask mandate. We're ending the mask mandate. Somebody who doesn't wear a mask is killing your children and killing grandma. Um, so, no, I, I don't. There is no. Uh, there is no utopia where we're all going to work from the same set of facts because facts are inevitably framed by ideology. Uh, Number five is incredibly open to abuse because who's to say what offends the rights and dignities of any person in an atmosphere where words are construed as violence?
1: He didn't say defend. It said recognizes.
0: Recognize. Okay. Well, I still think that's highly open to abuse.
1: So do you think there's such an expert bureaucratic control on these enforcement of rules that objective information cannot stand if it threatens their imperatives? Yes. Really? Yes. I mean that's that would be fucking terrible if that <laughs> I, was the case. I I mean I, honestly, John, if that's really the <laughs> I'm serious. If that's where we're living, yeah, that's not okay. People think, Sam,
0: that we're living in an incredibly unusual time, an, an incredibly unstable and chaotic time. I think the incredibly unusual time was 1945 to 2000-something. I think there's never in human history been that degree of centralized information and centralized broadcast of just a few players being able to broadcast just a few things to most of the people through their three television networks and their limited number of music studios and and movie studios. I think now we've kind of returned to actually the human norm of a much more chaotic set of information, uh, flows, and channels. and I think that there's a kind of nostalgia on the part of a certain type of liberal for that more homogeneous culture.
1: I it's not I don't know if it's a nostalgia so much as it is a necessity. And I speak as a necessity and I speak as a good old liberal democrat here.
0: But we had liberal democracy from seventeen seventy six to nineteen forty five.
1: In the sense that I truly believe that, and you know, you got you got Mr. Ted Kaczynski, uh, Blake Masters, you got you got Luddites and traditionalists on this new right. They're the vanguard of a chaotic, t- a technological future. Um, it's it is the liberal Democrats. It is the liberal Republicans it is the mainstream conservatives in the united states it is the constitutionalists <clears throat> it is the real civic workers it is the real workers in government who are the traditionalists who are um anti-progress anti-technology well, i don't say anti-technology with a desire to curb technology in this case yeah. knowing that it's current and, and advancing manifestation is quite simply incompatible with the fruits and the verified truth not a guaranteed truth but the verified truth of our democratic system we need re- we need regulation
0: okay i'm i'm with you part of the way um i not not ver- there there i'm sorry there's no verified truth uh, i'll be our resident nietzschean um, but Here's what I would be willing to do. I think Obama's five points there, his five freedoms or whatever, um, are going to create a regulatory nightmare of people endlessly trying and inevitably differentially enforcing these highly subjective measures of what you said promotes democracy and what you said doesn't. I have a much, I think, simpler infrastructural solution that I borrow from a centrist, Jonathan Haidt. Do you know Jonathan Haidt? Sure, yeah. Uh, which is what needs to be curbed here is not the speech on the platforms, but the technological infrastructure that incentivizes the lightning quick spread Mm -hmm. of any trash, you might say. Mm -hmm. And that's things like the retweet button and things like the algorithmically determined trending tab. I think if you just modified or got rid of those, then it wouldn't matter – if somebody said something untoward because it wouldn't have that capacity to go viral and reach everyone so quickly if you don't have that retweet and that trending tab
1: well okay well that's fair but you're worried about these principles obama's principled solutions
0: yes it's just a lot of abstract
1: verbiage well well, abstract verbiage in your opinion that is broad and broad enough and creates enough space, in which bureaucrats and and regulators can bring their subjective inclinations and their ideological commitments um, to the enforcement of them. Yes, that's what you're worried about. Yeah. Okay. Well, and they'll
0: enforce that stuff against people who aren't on the right too. They'll, okay. they'll go against black identity sure, extremists. Sure. sure. Or okay.
1: But here's here's where our freedom lies. This is this is game on. This is game time. This <laughs> is the game time right here. And I agree with you that I agree with you that that it, there is that subjective margin intentionally, John. Mm-hmm. Intentionally, mm-hmm. and and you you agree with the principles, of course. You I read them to you, but you 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 saw through them to, to, towards their to, sort of saw past the ideological veil into the real hard real politic.
0: Well they're so abstract threats. that I, I wish I couldn't disagree with them. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. Yes.
1: So there's that subjective space. This is a game time. This is what a patriot does in the twenty okay? twenties. <laughs> okay? A patriot patriot doesn't a patriot doesn't jerk off to the Red Scare girls. All right. <laughs> oh, a, 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 a a patriot doesn't a patriot doesn't go listen to to um, go on zero HP Lovecraft and and get all angry and weird. Uh, a patriot doesn't uh, worship um, Amanda Milius or um, get all quixotic and know it all on Curtis Yarvin. Okay, okay, That's not what a patriot does. Okay, a patriot takes, a patriot takes this subjective space that Obama just, just drew for your bitch asses. Go <laughs> <laughs> on, he just drew it. Recognizes the value and the necessity of the principles therein and then gets in that arena and fights like hell to to make that subjective space their own and our our truest and our most our most authentic and American within the liberal tradition. And because it's Obama just laid open ground for us. That is subjective space. So let's fill it with our stories. Let's fill it with our culture. Let's fill it with our principles. Let's fill it with our music. Let's fill it with our arguments. And it's our it's for ours to defend and we will build the Democratic Internet Commons the world deserves, um, but we can't let any of these authoritarian, um, illiberal agents try to collapse that process.
0: That's very noble, but in practice, it's going to run into the fact that our stories, our art is going to transgress these principles. I mean, that's how we got in this mess. That's the bottom line. I'm sorry, but the, the, the left started it. I mean, if you're talking about the last decade, the left started it. They started the woke stuff on the campuses, and then it spread through social media. Social media was the vector through which all this insane stuff that comes partially from the Maoist tradition has elements of—I'm sorry, of the Nazi tradition through Heidegger and stuff like that. All these identity politics, all this deconstruction. I went through grad school. I learned it all. That stuff was confined to the campus. Then it gets spread through the internet, through social media once Twitter— and Tumblr really kick off in the last decade and then through that it starts feeding back into the private and public bureaucracies the HR departments the tech companies okay and that becomes the crushing thing where you can't make any assertion because here's what happens in deconstructive philosophy any assertion is violence, because any assertion promotes a norm of truth, and any norm of truth excludes everyone who can't live up to that norm of truth. So everything you say is problematic, everything you say is fascist, and for everything you say that we don't like, you get to be taken out, you get to be disciplined, you have to be sent for uh, sensitivity training, okay? Everything you say is suspect because the fact that you've said it at all is discursive fucking violence. So it's the left, I'm sorry, that started this. And I don't think they're going to finish it with this same abstract verbiage until they start saying, oh, we actually, I'm sorry, we followed a bunch of Maoists and Nazis down a cul-de-sac, okay. and we need to pull back. I'm sorry, I'm getting a little inflamed. No, do it. You Go. sometimes get inflamed. Come on. You sometimes get inflamed. I'm sorry, I was in, I was in, academia. I was in academia for a very long time, and I have a lot of built-up resentments. and. I want to hear from Obama. Actually, I'm sorry. I shouldn't have. Uh, I shouldn't have let these people uh, terrorize the public sphere in ways that did inflame this counterreaction on the right that often derives from some of the same sources. These people are reading Foucault and all that, and that's fine. Mm-hmm. Read all that stuff. Read everything. Um, but uh, I just don't trust them. I don't trust Obama. Mm-hmm. I don't trust the libs. That doesn't mean I like the right. I have all sorts of problems with the right. I went through some of them earlier, but I'm going to need something more concrete from these people that's not just another pie into our democracy.
1: They need us. Okay. (laughs) Ben Rhodes put out a clarion call two weeks ago on his Twitter page. Oh, Jesus. We need stories. And John, (laughs) thank you for that. But sometimes I wonder what if it was all a test? <laughs> by by whom the aliens? <laughs> what if it was all a test, John? Okay. From what is, what is this nightmare we've been living in for 15 years? What if it was all a test? How are we doing? I think we're doing pretty fucking good. <laughs> sometimes I think sometimes I think that. Yeah. Sometimes yeah. I think that it was all a test. Recently, I've been getting those signals, similar signals to the super soldier vibes. <laughs> um, you know, speaking of jerking after the Red Scare, girls. Hold on. Okay. <laughs> hold on. Go on. That's so last year. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I let me expound quick, just quickly on this test okay. theory. Yeah, go ahead. If you don't mind. Sometimes I wonder, with all of this PC stuff, and just what you described, I couldn't describe it any better and i agree with everything you said and i've lived it but i wonder john if in some sort of metaphysical retroactive grand historical way <clears throat> this the the per- almost darwinian too evolutionary almost the purpose of this movement that we've we've troubled we've had trouble explaining people haven't really been able to explain just <clears throat> what the fuck is up these people's asses mhm People, people, have, people have tried, but I wonder if it's beyond them. I wonder if it's something beyond them to the extent that we're getting to a point now where men – okay, we're going to talk gender – where men – because this is a gendered thing more than it is a race thing oh, in yeah. my opinion. Oh, it's a gender thing. We're
0: going to see it the next couple elections. Yeah, elections. <laughs> yeah.
1: um, I sometimes wonder if this was a test to see how men would respond, three ways to respond. One, you cuck out. Mm-hmm. Lose your masculinity, completely become captive to that ideology. Mm-hmm. So the second way to fail, bronze age pervert, new conservatism, black pill, red pill. These women, are, they need to be, ooh. you turn into a misogynist. Mm-hmm. You turn into a, a you, you get into Bannon. You know, I was flirting with that for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a fail. Mm-hmm. That's an F. This is a test, by the way. Okay. And then there's the... You can... Some men, and only the true and noble men... This is a this is an older... This is like an Arthurian myth, man. Some men can pass the test. Mm-hmm. And these are the men who don't get too annoyed, irritated, reactionary in either direction to this encroaching feminine grasp for power. Mm-hmm. And know that evolutionarily, politically... Entomologically, what does that word mean? That's the study of insects. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Sorry. (laughs) Pedagogically, uh, uh, epidemiologically, sorry, no. Jesus, what's the one? Epistemologically, Uh that they know that they're going to need men, that type of men who can respond and be immune to the criticism, Mm. tolerance, care. Sensitivity, mm-hmm. open-mindedness, non reactionist, is self-assertion, principled, experimental, loving, collaborative, able to take the, the 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 arrows and the darts of the wokeness, yeah, and not be broken by it. It's a test. Yeah, some men are failing, some men are passing. What do you think about that?
0: I I think you're right. I think that. Um that there is a certain like integrity in not flying off the handle at, at the woke stuff and not fully capitulating to it but sort of maintaining your dignity. And
1: they need that. They're going to need they're it. They're going to need it.
0: Yeah, yeah. Because what it is is it's a it's a kind of collective accusation being visited on you as an individual, which is always unjust.
1: Of course. And because they're going to need us to wrangle more males. <laughs> we'll be, yeah. You know, well, eventually. I, I don't know if I'm going to wrangle any no, males. No, but... <laughs> ideologically. Ideologically. Sure, yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah. 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 yeah so they're yeah. not
1: going to do it. No. <laughs> <laughs> what the fuck <laughs> are they going to do? Right. Ben Rhodes, right. stories, stories, fellas. Right. Stories. <laughs> So you agree with that with yeah. that I it's kind of interesting. I think people need to start thinking that way because you gotta start you guys, 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 you gotta stop thinking about motherfucking PC stuff and wokeness like to the extent it's such an apocalyptic threat that you're gonna become authoritarian overnight. That's some real weak stuff. Yeah. You know, grow a spine, it's not that big of a threat if you don't if you can develop an individual psychology to move through it. And, and interact with it within our national values. It's not that big of a threat. And you're getting worked up into a tizzy like a woman. And you're, get, you're getting taken advantage of by these fucking Russian monster right-wingers or whatever the fuck they are.
0: Uh-huh. <laughs> okay. Well, I, I disavow some of that rhetoric. So. Um, but I thought um,
1: – What about the Red Scare Girls?
0: Right. Because – I have a segue. I have a segue. Okay. I have a segue. okay. One of my favorite quotes from Obama, I mentioned on our, our two episodes ago when we did The Wasteland, that I used to teach The Wasteland. And I think it was—I um, didn't know we were going to talk about this. so I don't have it in front of me. But I think, I think it was The Wall Street Journal about 10 years ago um, published some—I think it was an excerpt from one of the biographies of Obama. And the biographer had had a look at his correspondence from when he was in college And there was a letter he wrote to his girlfriend at the time about T.S. Eliot and how much he admired T.S. Eliot. Uh, And in the letter he said, I can quote this from memory uh, (laughs) uh, for what will be obvious reasons. He said, there's a certain type of conservatism I admire more than bourgeois liberalism. And he said that in praise of Eliot. And I thought that that that's the thing I'm not gonna say Obama might jerk off over the Red Scare girls, but I think he might be interested aesthetically
1: in what they represent. This is this is the road, man. Yeah. This is the Ben Rhodes. Rhodes. This is the Ben Rhodes, man. (laughs) Um, They step into the wrong arena, man. Oh it's all a test. It's all a test. (laughs) So I think
0: there is, you know, in journalism, there is the phenomenon of the scoop. And I would say if there's a scoop in this article by James Pogue that we've been intermittently discussing, it's in a moment where Pogue gets Blake Masters to walk right up to the line of conceding that the Teal Foundation might have contributed toward Red Scare, uh, which is a possibility we discussed on our Shock Jocks episode. So Pogue Mm. says to Blake Masters, um, if the Teal Foundation is funding some of these you know, culturally avant-garde ventures in New York like Red Scare. And, uh, and Masters first says, I think I would know if those kids were getting money. We fund some stuff, but we're not funding an army of meme posters. Then he told me that he and Teal had met with Anna Katchian, one of the co-hosts of Red Scare, which was cool, he said. Their podcast is interesting. I asked if there was a world in which they might get funding from Teal. Maybe, yeah, he said. We fund some weird stuff with the Teal Foundation. So it went from a pretty solid denial to something pretty close to a confirmation.
1: So what's the significance of that?
0: The significance is the question of whether or not the free cultural space we sometimes champion is imbricated with power politics and if that should affect our evaluation of it.
1: I think so, and I think we've covered this a little bit, and and you know I don't. Teal is a thinking man. Teal is well educated and certainly proactive. <laughs> so, <laughs> right place, right time, right jeans, right wing. Uh, <laughs> but uh- no, as well, I was going to say, so I'm not. I'm not at some knucklehead lambasting left-winger, wants to write off everything the man says. I mean, he did appear on, on Uncommon Knowledge with Peter Robinson twice. <laughs> so it's not... It's, it's a, he's vetted by the, you know, maybe the Goodfellas, Goodfellas podcast. I don't know if it was with H.R. Uh, McMaster and Neil Ferguson and, and, uh, and those cats out of the Hoover Institute. I mean, he's vetted by the Hoover Institute. Yeah. He's not a fucking maniac. He's got okay ideas. I don't know too much about him, and I liked his idea... About He said, we're in an age now where everything is encouraged to be introspective, like almost therapeutic, psychological in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, mental health. And you know, and he said, but we we need to um, evolve into an era where things are more externally driven. So like, yeah. go make and build. Very good advice. Yeah, I agree for, with that. For yeah. young people in yeah. so many ways, because it ends up healing the former, I would say, for a lot of people. Um so I'm not. So what? So what if he is? So what does it mean? Does is he an enemy? I know I said, I was talking shit about him last a couple podcasts ago, but is he? What do you make of this? I
0: so I um, I'm I'm gonna digress a little bit. You know how everybody now talks about the way the CIA was involved in funding a lot of the modernist art uh, at mid-century to combat socialist realism. So they, they had a hand in funding some of the major art shows that promoted abstract expressionism. And they were funding jazz shows to say, see, we don't, you know, we appreciate African-American culture and all of that. And everybody says that like it's a big scandal. Like if they hadn't done that, we'd have become a, a communist country and gone on with the proletarian realist art of the 1930s sure. and sure. still be reading john stein we are still reading john steinbeck but we would never have had thomas Pynchon or, or right. whatever
1: I, he- I heard a rumor about herbie nichols a piano player uh, great jazz bebopist, involvement with the cia this is being a little loose lips here um sources unsure but check it out some of his melodies are very spy like do 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 Sorry, go ahead.
0: Okay, <laughs> and so I, I've I've read a couple books on this subject, um, and I am not that persuaded of the fact that this was uh, this was determinate in the United States not becoming a, you know, purely state controlled economy and civil society. And I remember reading, actually, ironically, I think it was in the New Left Review, the Marxist journal. Uh, a uh, a remembrance of Robert, uh, Roberto Colasso, the Italian writer and publisher who died, and he had set up his own famously his own publishing company in Italy called I think Adelphi, and he, one of his motives in setting it up in the mid twentieth century because Italy was the ground of a lot of fights between communism and uh, and liberalism, partially being actually very much work done by Western and Eastern intelligence services, but the major publisher in Italy at the time, uh, which I think it was Enodi, wouldn't publish Nietzsche. And my thing is, <clears throat> Sam, if your political system can't survive people reading Nietzsche <laughs> and can't survive cutting irony-laden art hose, then it's not worth that much. Uh, it has to be able to survive that level of irony It has to be able, it has to be limber enough and flexible enough that in the artistic and cultural sphere, yes. it can handle
1: that. Well, I think, I think you're right. And I think this new right has, has used this precise, um, I would call it a, this precise need or yearning in a democracy or capacity, um, They've used it to their advantage because they frame themselves as a new regime, which is capable of protecting it or yes. providing it. Yeah, that won't last long, in my opinion, mm-hmm. because liberals are kind of picking up or getting up to speed about that, and adjust. They will make adjustments culturally, mm-hmm. and quite frankly, they have more of a historical. Background on which to to claim its true elaboration, yeah. which is freedom of conscience and, and freedom yeah expression,
0: and I think that yeah. in combination with empowering the actual religious right.
1: Yeah, but, um, but what else? Yeah, what else with the red sc- red skirt girls? I Anything? was just saying.
0: I don't. I think that I, I don't think it's that important if Peter Thiel's funding them. Just as I don't think it was that important that the. I think. One logical terminus of the art of painting was abstract expressionism, whether the CIA put money into it or not. Uh, and I think a kind of bitterly cutting uh, social and political irony is yeah. always going to be there, whether Peter Thiel funds it or not.
1: Yeah, and sometimes the most upsetting realization is that the CIA has good taste. That too. <laughs> so, John, what can we learn— you know, I know I can be hard-headed with some of this stuff, but I want to be open to it, and I do re- re- um, respect the cultural contributions to the people in this post-left, new conservatives movement. And but for, from where you sit, what can we learn from these people? What should we retain from their contributions? What should we value about what they're saying? Um, how should we? How could? How should we um, collaborate? Democratically,
0: I think the thing to learn is the more—that sort of ironist posture that used to be celebrated in liberal spheres with uh, Richard Rorty, for instance. Yeah, South Park. The, South Park, yeah. Uh, from the sublime to the absurd. Um, yeah, I think we can learn—and that's always been a part of our Western artistic tradition, this appreciation of the open-endedness of discourse that everything— that is said can't be taken absolutely seriously, as some kind of uh, uh, discussion over whether or not your personal identity is valid or not. We have to be a little bit tougher in the cultural sphere. Accept, you know, polysemy—not uh, polyamory, but polysemy. If I'm pronouncing that right, uh, it means you know the proliferation of meanings. Accept irony. Accept harder-edged expressions. Um, I think the new sincerity as a movement in literature and art was largely a, a failure. I think the realm of art is artifice, which is the opposite of nature. And so I think if they can re-inspire that kind of appreciation from, to talk liberals out of that dead end of absolute sincerity, down which I think we were sent in the last 10 to 20 years. And I think if articles like this are being written then i think maybe liberals are are learning that thank you john thanks sam